Well, good morning, gospel community. How are we today? Woo, all right, in that extra hour, you're good. That, praise the Lord for that. Uh, as far as the building goes, um, we are going to be giving some kind of update uh, during our prayer gathering. So, yes, please continue to pray. Lots of things that we're thinking through, and we'd love to just kind of give you an update at our prayer gathering next week. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. What does it take for a person to be saved? What are the, the dangers and the threats that we face that threaten to distort the beauty of salvation? When I think about that, there are two main distortions that we see in our world. Uh, the first way is through licentiousness. I don't know if that's an exact word, but it's through license. Like, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, I have the license to do whatever I want to. You know what? Because all i got to do is confess. And God's word says, if I confess, he's faithful to forgive. So you know what? I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, and I'm going to do whatever I want to because God's going to forgive me in the end anyway. That's an evil thing, is it not? It's a slap in our Savior's face to say, yeah, you did that, Jesus, thanks. Now I'm going to take full advantage and live the way I want to live. The other extent, the one that we're going to spend most of our time, the rest of our time on this morning is the idea of legalism. Legalism is just as evil in the sight of the Lord. Legalism is saying that somehow we have to do something in order to receive salvation. Nicholas Batsik defines legalism this way. It's an attempt to add anything to the finished work of Christ. It is to trust in anything other than Christ and his finished work for one's standing before God. In other words, it is to say that we are saved by grace plus works. It's not enough to just repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. You must also attend church. You must read your Bibles. You must go to small group. You must do a bunch of good things in order to be saved. This also is a slap in the face to Jesus. If we think this way, what we are basically saying to Jesus is that, you know what, your sacrifice was not enough. In other words, it would mean that he died in vain. This is a serious issue that we must address. And as we look in the book of Acts this morning, we're going to see that legalism is at the forefront of what is going on. And it's critical that we learn from what the apostles had to say in opposition for those trying to add to salvation. We must hold fast to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So let's jump into the text now. I'm going to start reading in Acts 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the con conversion of the Gentiles. And brought great joy to all the brothers. 
When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is, it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the, the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The cross was sufficient for our salvation. It is by grace, through faith in Christ alone, that we are saved. And Lord, we are tempted to add to that every day in subtle ways. And so I pray that you would open our eyes this morning, Lord, if we find ourselves falling into this trap of wanting to add to Salvation, or as we're discipling others, try to make things more complicated by hanging a heavy yoke around their neck that would just drain the life out of them. Lord, we need you in this. It's such a tender balance of understanding grace and faith, but also understanding that that grace and faith does produce fruit. It's not the fruit that saved us. Rather, it's, what's, it's the fruit that is the response. It's the outcome of that faith. And so, Lord, would you help us to understand clearly, Lord, and if there be someone in, in here who maybe is defeated because they do look at salvation as by works and they have nothing to provide, God, would you free them from that, that they would see where salvation comes from. So, God, we need your help this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at chapter 14 and the fact that tribulations are the way to the kingdom. 
And for anyone who decides to get serious about their faith in Christ, it's going to come with trials. It's going to come with tribulation. We face tribulation through rejection, through the praise of man, through persecution. But just as it didn't stop the apostles from preaching the gospel, we ought not let it stop us. And those were all tribulations outside of the church. But this idea of legalism is something that is infiltrating inside the church. This is an attack from inside. And we see this storm brewing in chapter 15. The beauty of the gospel is at stake. It is being threatened to be distorted into something that it is not. Now the Gentiles, they're being saved. The gospel is advancing. But not everybody is is on board with what is going on. The trouble is coming from many of the Jews who are wanting to place all of these extra things on the laps of these Gentiles. Now we must understand, for the entire lives of these Jews, they have lived by the law of Moses with the understanding that they needed to do all of these different things. They needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. These were hard things to get out of their mind as this has just been their nature from the beginning. It's what they learned and what they were taught. One must obey the law of Moses. But when Jesus came, he showed them the only way of salvation. Still, many struggle to understand what true salvation was. And so they spoke to these newly saved Gentiles. These leaders came and they told them, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And this, of course, was contrary to what the apostles were teaching all throughout the book of Acts. And so there was great dissension and debate among these differing parties and it got to the point where it led them to have this council here in Jerusalem. They're, they're having a counselor and discussing as a church what must be done in light of this teaching. And we see that Paul and Barnabas took part in it. And along their way to Jerusalem, we see that Paul and Barnabas, they stopped in these different places along the way, sharing of the revival of what was taking place among the Gentiles. And by God's grace, the people were excited about what was going on, perhaps the things that they were sharing were in light of the teaching that was taking place about the Gentiles needing to be circumcised. So he probably is wanting to straighten some of those things out. Now it's important for us to point out here that they weren't headed to Jerusalem to make sure that their teaching about grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, it was true. Rather, they wanted to make sure that the work that they had been doing amongst these Gentiles was not in vain. So they weren't going to try to get approval. They were making sure, hey, we're all on the same page, right? Because this is the truth. And if we're going to decide that the Gentiles have to be circumcised, then this is going to be a big problem for us. So this is not a sense where Paul and Barnabas are trying to see if what they're saying is true. They want to make sure that the advancement of the gospel is not in vain. And so once they reached Jerusalem and the council gathering, a Pharisee spoke up in verse 5. And we read this. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so this leads to much debate on what should happen here. And so for the rest of our time, there are two questions I want us to answer. The first question is this. How is a person saved? The second question is this. 
what are marks of a true follower of Christ? What are marks of true salvation? How do we know whether or not we are saved? How do we know if another person is saved? So let's look at that first question. How is a person saved? And there are two parts to this as we break down the text. The first part deals with the kind of the negative side. How are we not saved? And then it moves on to how are we saved? And so the first thing that we need to understand this morning is this. We are not saved by good works. We are not saved by good works. This, of course, is what the Pharisees here are trying to show. The crux of the debate is whether or not the Gentiles had to basically become Jews or proselytes. These would be people who weren't born Jewish, but they're carrying out the Jewish lifestyle. And this is what the Pharisees are saying. Hey, you got to become like us. you got to be doing the same things we're doing. you got to be following the law of Moses. That's the only way you can be saved. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a mark of someone who belonged to God. It was the, the sign of the covenant between God and man given to Abraham for all the males. A practice that was done for thousands of years. And up to the time of Christ, that was the expectation. But Jesus changed everything here. And what we see very clearly in the passage is that following the law, circumcision was not necessary for salvation. In fact, it would only distort the gospel. It would only distort the beauty of Salvation, and this is such a critical thing for us to understand today, isn't it? Now, we don't, we don't talk circumcision as if that's a way for salvation, but we are still tempted to want to add good works to being saved. Can good works make us right with God? Can it improve our relationship with God? Absolutely not. There is nothing that we can do that can contribute to our salvation. I want you to turn with me now to Titus chapter 3. Keep your finger here. Go to Titus. That's towards the end of the book. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. You'll find it there. This is such an important thing for us to understand. And scripture is absolutely clear. In fact, I even have it here on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Titus 3, 5 through 7 says this. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the the hope of eternal life. It was God's mercy That saved us. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. None of us here deserve salvation. We deserve eternal suffering for our sin. There's absolutely nothing we can do to get God to save us. Otherwise, man would have something to boast about. And consider this. What does that say about Christ's sacrifice if we can be good enough to be saved? then why did Christ need to die in the first place? If our works contributed to that, then why did he need to die from the first place? 
And then think about this. If we are saved by good works, then how do we know how much good works is enough? And then is it possible somehow that our bad works that we do, the bad things that we do, could somehow cover the good works that we had done before? And then we find ourselves on a bad day wondering, man, am I saved anymore or did I lose it? Man, it's such a slap in the face of God saying that your sacrifice isn't enough, Jesus. I need to do something in order to contribute to it. But that is such a defeating way to live. And there are many Christians who are living in light of this. And this produces one of two things. If we live thinking that somehow our good works will save us, we'll either be pride, proud, we'll be prideful, look at, look, look at my good works. Man, God must be really impressed with me. And look at all I'm doing for him. Man, he is lucky to have me. Or, on the flip side, and I have found myself in this place, we can find ourselves continually in the ditch. Just full of despair because we see our resume and realize, I have nothing here. I am such an inconsistent mess. Man, how am I ever going to know that Christ has rescued me or not? But the truth is, we cannot be saved by grace. But if on the flip side, salvation is by God's mercy, then God doesn't take it away. It's a gift. You don't give a gift and then take it back. Because if you took it back, that means somehow it was earned. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not by works. We also see this. We are not saved by race. We are not saved by race. Look at verse 9 again. It says this, and he made no distinction, that is God. God made no distinction between us and them. There's no difference between Gentile and Jews in light of who could be saved. Verse 17, jump there says this, that the remnants of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This is very clearly speaking to the reality that we cannot be saved based on our race. Look at verse 7 there. It says this, and this is... Peter getting ready to speak, and he says, Brothers, you know that in the day, early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter is speaking of when he went with Cornelius. You remember the story of Cornelius? Cornelius was a centurion. He was a high up in the Roman soldiers, and he, was a, he feared the Lord. And God gave him a vision and had for him to call for Peter. And so he sent for Peter, and remember... Peter's just relaxing and all of a sudden he has this vision where the sheet is laid before him. And there's all these different kinds of animals on there. And God says, eat whatever you want. And, and Peter says, no, I can't. These are unclean. And do you remember what God said to him? He said, what, I have, don't, call, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And it's speaking to the fact that, hey, salvation is for all people who repent and believe. And so this is what Peter is speaking of here. Verse 8. And God knows the heart, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by 
faith. God makes no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. Notice verse 12. It says this, and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So remember, who performed the miracles? Who was it that was responsible for these miracles that took place? Was it the apostles? No, it was God who did them through the apostles. As as we've been talking about all throughout this book, whenever the apostles did something miraculous, often the people responded in wanting to worship them. And every single time the apostles said, no, it's not us. If you remember when Paul healed the crippled, they wanted to offer sacrifices. What did Paul and Barnabas do? They ripped their robes because they were mourning the fact that this is, this is an opportunity for you to see God. This is God doing it, not me. I'm just his instrument. This was him working through me. And so he is explaining to the apostles that God performed these wonders and miracles in order to confirm the message that they were delivering. Why would God need to confirm the message if the Gentiles couldn't be saved? God has broken, up, broken open the doors for salvation for anyone who would place their faith in God. And here's something for us to consider here. And now both Paul and Peter's testimony, these were experiential things that they were sharing. Experiences can all, can't always be trusted, can they? Like you hear of people say, you know, saying their experiences and you're like, I, I don't know if this is true or not. And so what we see here is James speaking up. Because he wanted to point them all back to, man, these are all things that are confirmed in Scripture. These aren't just things that they experience and they're just telling these experiential stories. These are, we can see from way back in the Old Testament that God told us that salvation was also for the Gentiles. And he speaks in chapter 15, verse 16, quoted from Amos. And we read that already, verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. So James points them back that, hey, guys, this isn't just their experience. This is the reality of what Scripture says. God does not save based on ethnicity. There are many ramifications for us in light of this. First of all, you don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to be a certain kind of person in order to be saved. You know, we in America often like to make a big deal about our country. (laughs) But I got news for us. The USA is not the Christian capital of the world. The body of Christ is included in every nation, tribe, and tongue. I think it is very good thing for us to understand and look at the people of God from a missional standpoint, from a universal approach. We need to be a missional church that has missions on our minds Missions all around the world. That's why we've been praying for Ukraine because we care about our brothers and sisters over in Ukraine. And sometimes we can get so consumed by our own country. And I get concerned when immigration things come up. And even in the church, we have this desire to shut out the immigrants from our country. Those are fleeing dangerous places. Because we care far more about our country than we do about the gospel advancing. The gospel is for all people. It's why 
We had Mark Patton come and share with us about his church from Budapest, Hungary. That's why there's absolutely no place for racism in the church. May God have mercy on us if we ever look at another person's skin and judge them based on that. Salvation is for all who repent and believe. It's not on where you were raised, how you were raised, who raised you, what family you came from. Just because your parents went to church doesn't mean that you are automatically saved. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by race. So, what is it that saves a man? Look at verse 9 again. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? By faith. We are saved by faith alone. So what exactly is faith? Is it believing in God? Is that faith? Oh, I believe there's a God. Is that what faith is? Faith is far more than that. We read this in James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. I can see kind of James mocking. Oh, great. <laughs> Hallelujah. You believe there's a God. So did the demons. And guess what? They shudder. And that's far more than I see what people do who say they believe in Jesus and yet they want to live whatever life they want to live because Jesus is going to forgive me anyway. The demons didn't even believe that. They shudder at the name of Jesus. So faith is far more than just believing there is a God. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us a, a good understanding of what faith is. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. With faith... We have assurance. There is assurance. We are confident in something. When it comes to salvation, we have a hope that we will be rescued. We have an assurance that we will be rescued. But faith is only as good as its object. You guys have all right now are expressing faith, whether you believe it or not. How many of you, when you came to church today, were like, all right, is this, is this chair safe? Okay, it's got four legs on it. Is it... Is it is this going to hold me? How many of you spent time doing that? You didn't do it. Why? Because you had faith trusting that that chair is going to hold you. Like that's the faith that God calls us to have in him. That when we wake up in the morning and the discouragements of yesterday are, are threatening our minds, that we put our faith in Jesus, understanding that it's finished. It's going to hold me up today, not because of anything I can do, but because of everything of what Jesus has done in our place. Faith is only as good as our object. If we trust in good works for salvation, that's rocky ground. Because when do our bad works all of a sudden nullify our good? How do we know when we've crossed the line? How do we know when we're good enough? That's not faith that I want to be standing in. That is sand. But when we place our faith in something outside of ourselves, rather someone... Namely, Christ, we stand on the rock. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But here's the understanding of faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We can't see Jesus physically. He's not physically here in the sense that we can see him sitting in a chair. So we place our faith. The very idea of faith is a, is a trust that even though I don't see it, 
Even though I don't see him, we have his scriptures, and I choose to believe that what the scriptures say is true. Jesus was the only one to live a perfect life. Therefore, he is the only one who could take our place and pay for our sin. And to place your faith in Christ means to be assured that his sacrifice paid the price for our sin in order to be made right with God. In order to be saved, one must place their faith, their confidence in Christ's death and resurrection. It means to have a conviction, a confidence that even though we can't see him, even though we can't see Christ, we believe it's true because that's what his word says. But not only are we saved by faith, we are saved through grace alone. Look at verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and, and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And then look to verse 17. Excuse me, look at verse 11. It says this, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So your notes, make sure you put verse 11 there. We are saved through grace alone. Grace of Jesus Christ. A very simple definition that you've heard me share multiple times about grace is this. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. So the very idea of Salvation by grace speaks to the fact that it cannot be by works. It's by grace. It's, it's something that is not deserved. It's not something that can be earned. It's an absolute free gift. If, if I were to ask you today, hey, come to my house today, please, I'd love for you to clean up my garage. If you clean up my garage, I'll give you $300. If I give you $300, is that a gift? No, that's something you've earned. Now, if I were to pull 100 bucks and give you 100 bucks right now, Sorry, I don't have $100 to give to anybody. <laughs> that would be grace. It would be a gift. We didn't do anything. We weren't impressive to the fact that Jesus said, oh, man, you're amazing. Uh, here's salvation because I could really use you on my team. No, it's grace. We read earlier that it's, it's his mercy. We don't get what we deserve. Rather, we get what we don't deserve. That's the whole understanding of salvation. We are saved by grace. And when it comes to understanding salvation in light of the Gentiles, which most of us, if not all of us, are, it is absolutely critical that we understand that we are saved by grace through faith. To think otherwise puts us in a very unstable and dangerous place. Good works don't save you. Going to church won't save you. Reading your Bible, giving to the poor, your race having saved parents, none of these things will lead us to salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. But here's the thing. Even though we're not saved by those things, those good works, there still must be this understanding that a person who genuinely repents of their sin they're going to have marks of salvation on their life. They're going to look differently. 
We don't look differently. We don't make our lives look differently in order to earn salvation. Rather, once God rescues us, we start living our lives differently. And so what are the marks of a person who is saved? The first mark is this. Salvation is marked by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is marked by the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 says this. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. The question to answer is this. How do you know if you've received the Holy Spirit? And I think there are a lot of people who get tripped up over this. And I've heard many testimonies from many people. And there are a lot of interesting things that you hear about what makes a person think they are saved. I've had people say, well, I prayed, and I felt this warm sensation run from my tip of my head to the tips of my toes. Or I, I prayed for God to give me a sign, and the, the, the light shined through the window in just the right way that made me, I, I received the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit coming to me. But these are all subjective things. I've heard people say, you'll receive the gift of tongues. You'll be able to speak in a different language when you receive the Holy Spirit. But we see all throughout Scripture, too, that not everybody gets the gift of the Holy Spirit. So how do we know whether or not someone has received the Spirit? How do you know if you have received the Spirit? Let me invite you to turn now. Keep your finger here. Turn to Galatians. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians. On my Bible, it's page 1665. I want look look with me at verse 22. This is how we know whether or not we have the spirit of God in us. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, it's not about a feeling. It's not about an emotion. It's not about a sensation that runs through your body. It's not about praying and God gives you some kind of crazy sign that no one can prove is true. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? You find yourself growing and loving others. You find yourself growing in patience, joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering. You start to develop these characteristics and they start to define you. That people look at you, they see this difference. Is it you? Is it you being awesome? It's the Holy Spirit moving in you. Let's not make this too over-spiritual, over-mystical. I think the Spirit moves in mystical ways, don't get me wrong. But when it comes to understanding whether or not we have the Holy Spirit, the thing that we see is we see different fruit in our lives. We see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things that develop in the believer. A mark of salvation is when we have the fruit of the Spirit's. The second thing, very similar to this, salvation is marked by a changed heart. Salvation is marked by a changed heart. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. What came first there? Faith of the changed heart? Faith. It was by faith that their hearts were cleansed. 
This ties right into the fruit of the Spirit. When God rescues us from our sin, when the Holy Spirit comes in, he, is, he makes us into a new creation. The old way of living has passed away. The new has come. The loves that we once have are no longer things that we can stand in our presence. God changes our loves. We have a love for the things that God loves. No longer do we open up God's word and think, here I go again. Ugh, so boring. We don't, come, we don't wake up on a Sunday morning thinking, time change, i got to go to church because that's what we're supposed to do. Oh, we get to go. We get to meet with God's people. We're two or more gathering in his name. He is surely with us. God moves to the preaching of his word. We have new joys. We love God's people. We want to know if we're truly saved. Has God changed our hearts to love the things that God loves? To be saved means to be changed. Has God changed your heart? So, marks of salvation include receiving the Holy Spirit, a changed heart. Look at verse 20. We'll start in verse 19 because that will help us give a little bit of context. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. These are some very interesting verses, aren't they? Isn't this the same thing that they'd ask them to do? Aren't these like additions to the law? Is, are, are they saying that in order to be saved, they need to stay away from these things? I don't think this is about salvation at all. One thing you have to understand is that Christ brought much change with the Jews. There were many customs that the Jews were doing that were just part of their lives. And with the Gentiles, none of the customs were a part of their lives. And, and so it wouldn't be uncommon for these Gentiles to actually purchase food that were sacrificed for idols. It was nothing to them. And really it was no big deal here. But here's what happened during this time. So the Jews, for them, it was an abomination to eat food sacrificed to idols. It was an abomination to eat food that still had the blood in the meat. And this would have created great disunity amongst the believers if they gathered together. At a gent if a Gentile invited a Jew over and he's got this sacrificed food before them. And so what is this speaking to here? Salvation is marked by desire for Christian unity. Salvation is marked by a desire for Christian unity. They weren't asked to restrain in order to be saved. It was for the benefit of the body of Christ. It was for Christian unity. It was out of love for these other believers, for the body. I mean, how often in, to, in today's society do we have the community involved in, in mind? How much of the ads that you watch on a regular basis on TV speak about thinking of others? Have it your way. Your way right away. We live in such an individualized culture that we have forgotten the importance of community. Why do we have community in our church name? It's because it matters. God didn't save us in order for us to just have me. It's just me and God. I could just have my relationship with God. I don't need the church. You know what? I've been to the church and they're a full bunch of, bunch of hypocrites who live there. And so all I need is me and Jesus. But here's where I can't, 
I can't correlate these two things together. I can't fathom how you can say that you love God, but you hate his body. How can you say you love God and then say you hate the church? God's word says very clearly in 1 John, if you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a what? You're a liar, and the truth is not in you. And so if we harbor bitterness towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we how can we correlate that in our minds and understanding that a mark of salvation is that we love the things that Christ loved? It doesn't mean that churches don't burn you. It doesn't mean that there are churches around here who are preaching a false gospel. But we still love the body of Christ because that's what Jesus loves. A mark of true salvation is one who loves the things that God loves. And one of those things is Christian unity. And then lastly... Salvation is marked by a pursuit of holiness. Salvation is marked by a pursuit of holiness. We see there in verse 20 the, the call to abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, one needs to not read much in the Old Testament to find out that sexual immorality has been a problem from day one. From the beginning. And it is a major problem in our world today. How many pastors have you heard of who have had moral failures because they've given themselves over to sexual immorality? But today it's not even just a, a physical relationship with someone. We carry around this device that we have pornography at our fingertips at every moment of every day. And this is no different out in the world than it is in the church. And it's no different amongst men and women to a certain degree. It's not just a man's problem, it's a woman's problem. And the hard part is we live in a world, we live in a country who celebrates sexuality, who has no problem with it. And then we wonder why there's rape in the world. We wonder why all these things happen. It's because we're out of control. We don't have an understanding of what God has said about sexuality. God calls us not to be pure in order to be saved. God saves us and then calls us to purity to honor him. Sexual sin will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your family. It can destroy your career. If you are caught in that this morning, may God bring deep conviction to you. Pursue holiness. So in conclusion, let me remind you, salvation doesn't come based on our performance. Here's the balance here. Here's what we have to understand. These marks of salvation, we are not going to live out perfectly. But if we are not increasing in them, we should ask ourselves, does the Holy Spirit truly dwell in us? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when the Holy Spirit comes inside, when the Holy Spirit takes over our lives, he begins to transform us. We begin to see the fruit of the Spirit. We find ourselves growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that God grows in us. And we should ask ourselves this morning, if I don't see an increase in those things, was I even saved to begin with? We're a church that believes that once you are truly saved, you are always saved. But we also believe in the perseverance of the saints. 
He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. If there's no completing that's happening right now, then we should not think ourselves as being have been rescued from Christ. And so this is an opportunity for us to examine our lives. Number one, do we understand the gospel? And number two, has the gospel taken root and brought change in my life? Through salvation, God changes our hearts. He gives us new loves. We grow in love with the Bible. We grow in our desire for Christian unity. We realize that we are better and stronger together. God made us for community. And the last mark of a believer that we talked about is that we pursue holiness. We strive to honor the Lord in everything we do. Have you been saved? Do the mark of the believers reside in you? May we all reflect the glory and the beauty of Christ in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises of scripture that we see. I thank you for the salvation that you've given us. That is a gift. And so, Lord, help us here this morning to not twist things, to not look at a bad day and think we lost our salvation. God, but if, if we haven't changed at all from the time of when we thought we were saved, if there's no difference in our lives, if there's no growing maturity, if there's no growing passion for you, if there's no growing fruit of the spirit that we see in Galatians 5, would you bring great conviction to us this morning? Maybe somebody this morning has thought they were saved, but yet their lives look no different than the world. Lord, it's your grace when you bring conviction like that. There's no shame in not wanting to bring it up because you've put on this mask. There's more, far more shame if you were to come before the Lord Jesus on your death and he were to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So, Lord, if there's anybody in here that needs to humble themselves this morning, would you bring repentance? Lord, the reality is none of us here are nailing all of those marks all the time. But yet, even though our sins are many, your grace, your mercy is more. You are worthy of praise. So, Lord, give us the proper perspective this morning. Let us be amazed at the salvation that you've given us. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you now to stand as we sing in response this morning.